Thanks for joining us for another message from Southland Church. If you'd like any information about our church, check out our website at mysouthland.com. Recap. Going into understanding your enemy. So we've talked about a few things here. Uh, just very, very quick on the recap side. Uh, the enemy is not people. We don't fight against people. We fight for people. That's very important. Oops, I went a little far. Uh, our enemy is Satan. Satan is our enemy. He is real. He's not just this, um, you know, he's not just a picture or he's not an imaginary creature. He is a real being. Jesus talked lots about him. The Bible says lots about him. And we've all experienced uh, some of his work here on this earth. Uh, we also have though, our enemy is our sinful desires. That's where temptation, that's why temptation actually draws us into sin. Because we have sinful desires. That's what scripture teaches us in James. And we also, uh, uh, in part four, we looked at the dangers of busyness and losing focus and how we need to set aside time. To make sure that we're not too busy to do the things that God is asking us to do and to spend time with him in quiet and in trust. And there's more we'll have to say on that at another date. And then we've spent, uh, I think part three and four, or two and three, we talked about bitterness, offense, um, unforgiveness, and those kinds of things. So we started by laying that foundation of bitterness being, or, or a wounded heart. So scripture talks about the different soils of the heart and how Jesus likes to plant truth into our hearts, right? And he wants fertile soil. The devil looks for fertile soil as well. And his preferred soil of the heart is wounds. He loves wounds. It's the easiest place to kind of move in and, be, and, and to uh, plant deception in us, right? And so one of his main strategies is to make us bitter, offended, resentful, and that's how he brings about, apart the uh, stealing, killing, and destroying of us. So part three, you can go back and look at them if you haven't caught up, and that's totally fine. We looked at the devastating effects of holding on to bitterness. And if you'll recall, I went through a whole bunch of different stats and stuff that I'd pulled off on the internet and been researching. I, I was even shocked at some of the things that they're now finding on the devastating effects of people that hold on to resentment and bitterness. It literally kills you from the inside out. Literally kills you from the inside out. So we've talked about forgiveness, and that's really what we're going to do again. We're going to come back in and talk about forgiveness, but we're going to add in some components like reconciliation and trust. And one of the common things that I see happening within the church, and I don't just see it in you guys, one of the common things that I have done in the past is use those words almost interchangeably. And I see that happening. I've even seen it, I mean, in, in some extreme examples, I've seen it where I've dealt with a husband and a wife, and the husband was looking at, you know, pornography, uh, which is bad, and she finds out, and she sets up a boundary, and... He gets mad because you're a Christian, you're supposed to just forgive and move on and things are supposed to continue to go on like normal. But it doesn't just go on like normal. Right? And, and then she might doubt, am I actually forgiving? Because I feel like there's something else that needs to happen. But, but I know I'm supposed to forgive no matter what. Well, that's because there often is, when there's broken trust in a relationship, there's more than just forgiveness that needs to happen. And so we have to learn to separate some of these terms. Reconciliation, forgiveness, trust, they are different things. And it's a very in-depth uh, topic. And we're not going to just finish it all today. In fact, today we're mostly just going to talk about our call to reconciliation and then really start tackling into the heart that we need to get inside of us before we're even ready to start working down the, the road of reconciliation with others. Um, but we know it's an important thing. Luke 17, verse 1 and this, I am, I'm not changing it much, but that Greek scandalizio means stumbling blocks, temptation, or offense. So Luke 17, verse 1 says, And Jesus said to his disciples, Temptations are, to sin are sure to come. Another way you could translate that, and it would, be, it would have integrity, is offense is sure to come. 
Offenses are sure to come, uh, but woe to the one through whom they come. So we know that, and nothing kills our love quicker and faster than offense. And not only that, so that's externally, and if that doesn't grab you, nothing will kill you internally and externally more efficiently than bitterness and offense. And that's what we looked at in part three. And if you forget part three, go back and listen to it. I was going through the notes when I did this, and there were things in there that even I forgot. It's funny how that works. Um, but anyways, because I'm often preaching to myself, so you know. Preaching before the Lord and trying to honor him, and I'm preaching to me and I'm preaching to you guys, and that's kind of how this, this whole gig works. Uh, but I think most of us can get it. So when we look, especially in light of the devastating effects, and we looked at Jesus' compassionate command to forgive, it's a compassionate command. It's not harsh. It's because he understands just how devastating it is. He, in love, calls us to forgive. I think most of us in here, if not everyone, and those joining online, I think you would agree with that. That, that especially after looking at its effects, we want to forgive. And so we can go out there with this heart of, okay, I'm going to be a person of forgiveness. And we may even tell ourselves we've forgiven, but then we quickly run into stumbling blocks. There's stumbling blocks along, along the way. We get stuck in the practice of forgiveness. How do I actually work through it? I had someone very sincerely with a good heart ask me last week in, in an area that I won't talk about right now, but, but how did you work through forgiveness here, or did you? I'm, I feel stuck. How, how do you work through that? And it wasn't for lack of desire, but almost like a lack of knowing how do I work, how do I walk it out? How do I live this? Um, but we also know there's something that changes too. Like there seems to be, there's a difference when someone hurts you once or they don't, you don't know them. And there's a difference when someone is close in your circle and they continue to do the same thing over and over again that hurts you. So we get stuck in forgiveness there. The repeat offender. What do we do with a repeat offender? And then, if you had a really close relationship and there was trust that was broken, how do you navigate forgiveness and then moving towards having trust in a relationship, right? And, and not, but not cutting them out, but then at the same time not just opening yourself up to, like, where do we find that line? Like, what's that line and how do we actually navigate that and get there? And that's really what we're going to be talking about because, you know, I think often we try to turn the other cheek. There's lots of scriptures that I really have gone through. We can't... We won't even get through half of them this morning, just a few of them. Um, but there's so many scriptures that we have, I think, that add to some of the confusion when we don't see a difference between the different words. So we look at turn the other cheek, and we're like, oh, turn the other cheek. I just, I just got to take it all that comes to me. But then there's also scriptures that say if someone sins against you, to go and confront them. <laughs> well, which one is it? Do you turn the other cheek, or do you confront? Well, we're going to talk about the, the difference. Turning the other cheek, I'll, I'll let you onto that already because I'm not preaching on that today, but is talking about retaliation. We don't retaliate. It's not necessarily talking about staying quiet. It's talking about not returning evil for evil. When someone wrongs you, you don't wrong them in return. That's not how you make something right. You turn the other cheek. It does not mean you can't talk to them about it. And that's the messiness of reconciliation that we're going to get into, but we're not there yet. So how do we navigate forgiveness and having relationships especially when we're talking about the category of those who we had relationship with that broke trust. How do we get to that? So you're going to find whether it's a stranger that hurts you or whether it's someone close to you that hurts you, there's going to be elements that are the same because in all cases we're called to love. Christian charity, we give love to all people. That is our call. No matter what, there's no excuse we can give to God for anything other than loving people. We love those who, who love us and we love our enemies. 
but how do we build trust, right? So forgiveness, you know, we've often said things like in the set free, by the way, if, you're, if you haven't been, and this bitterness talks and all that stuff have been really weighing on you, sign up for the set free. Go there. It's going to be, that's a great time, something about setting aside time to really just work on your heart. Don't miss out on an opportunity uh, if you need to. I know, I'm not saying that everyone in here needs to go right now. We all need to work on getting better at forgiveness, reconciliation, and reconciliation, absolutely, yes. But maybe you might be going through something specifically right now. I would encourage you, go and try it out. But forgiveness and trust are different. We talk about that at the Set Free. They are. They're different. And the forgiveness part is something you don't need other people there for. You actually can do it between you and God. You might need someone to help you walk through it because depending on the level of the hurt, you might not be able to navigate it on your own. But you don't need the person who hurt you there in order to do it. But trust... We have trust with people that we have close relationship with. Trust is a two-way street. It requires two people. So it, what do I do when the other person keeps breaking trust? How do we rebuild trust? And I, I think one of the common things that I see is sometimes people go from, okay, I'll forgive, but then we'll totally cut off the relationship with the person that I had trusted that broke trust. We'll just cut it off. And that might be appropriate, but even there, the Bible actually has lots to say about the process on which you do that before you just cut someone out on how you're supposed to approach it. But on the other side, so, so on one hand, we just kind of cut off the relationship entirely. On the other hand, we can be imbalanced if we just jump back into a relationship and just completely trust the person again, waiting for them to break it again. So how do we navigate that? We need reconciliation. That's that middle step. That's the middle step. We need reconciliation. And reconciliation, if, if, we don't, if we don't work through the process of reconciliation, there's lots on that in here, and we'll, and we'll look at that probably more next week. But if we don't do the process of reconciliation, it's like trying to build a wall of trust on sand. Even without further offenses, it, it, it just crumbles and falls. It shifts. It can't actually stay. Reconciliation becomes the foundation upon which we can grow uh, relationships. So... We are called to reconciliation. The ministry of reconciliation. We're going to look at this together. Uh, 2 Corinthians, Paul says, And all this is from God, who through Christ reconciled us to himself and gave us the ministry of reconciliation. That is, in Christ, God, we, we, uh, in Christ, God was reconciling the world to himself, not counting their trespasses against, him, against them and entrusting us the message of reconciliation. He goes on to say that he made him to be sin who knew no sin, so that we might become the righteousness of God. Incredible passage. If you haven't read it, read the whole thing. I only have time for a couple of snippets in there, but the passage is really, really good, but talks about reconciliation. Now, clearly, he's talking about reconciliation between us and God. That's actually the nature of what salvation is about. Because reconciliation, it's, it means there's been a break in the relationship. That's why we need to be reconciled. We're going to look at that in a second. I mean, the, the definitions, the Greek definitions, catalage, an exchange or restoration to favor, dictionary.com. I did the Google for that one. The process through which friendly relations are restored. So there's always an assumption when reconciliation is required, there's an assumption that relationship has been broken. Relationship with God, we all require reconciliation because all of us have a, a broken relationship with him. All of us have sinned and fallen short of the glory of God. Right? And the wages of sin is death. That's what Romans teaches us. But God has provided a way for us to be reconciled to him. Our God is in the business of reconciliation. Now, 
I'm saying we're called to reconciliation, and I'm now implying by implication already with my examples that I'm talking about reconciliation with each other. And you might say, but isn't this passage, or the one before it, anyways, isn't this just talking about reconciliation with God? This is where I'd say, you're right. You're right, it is talking about reconciliation with God, but I think it extends beyond that. If, if our God is in the business of reconciliation, and we're his followers, I mean, Luke 6 says, if you're a disciple, anyone who is a, a disciple will become like his teacher. So if our God, one of the main thing that, the things that he's doing is, is reconciling people to himself, he's about restoring relationships. How can we be genuine followers if we're not modeling and demonstrating that same attribute in our own lives? So yeah, we are supposed to be, that ministry of reconciliation is actually a call. You're saying that's great commission. It is great commission. And great commission's more than just going and spouting off verses to people or telling them true facts about God. It's about showing people what he's like. We model it. When I, am, when I have integrity and it hurts, I show what Jesus is like. When I give radically or generously, I model what he's like. When I slow down and stop to get into someone's life, even though I don't know them very well because they need the time, I model what Jesus is like. He did those kind of things. When I turn that other cheek, right, all of these things, we model it. We don't just say he's like that. Because people have no framework. Those who don't know God, they have no framework for what he's like. How would they? They've not encountered him personally. And that's part of our job as Christians, that they encounter the living God in us in the way that we live. And so that's why it's important that we need to become experts at reconciliation. Look at Romans, uh, I'll skip forward here again. Romans says, but God shows his love for us and that while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. For if while we were enemies, we were reconciled to God by the death of his son, how much more, now that we are reconciled, shall we be saved by his life? More than that, we also rejoice in God through our Lord Jesus Christ, through whom we now have received reconciliation. So God has reconciled us to himself through Jesus Christ. And I want to highlight something here. We often just run over some of these things. Because while we were still sinners. Now let's make this personal a little bit. Carefully. And then you might say, I have an extreme example. I don't know if all of this applies to me. I'm not talking about extreme examples. I'm going to give general principles. We'll get into some of the nitty-gritty more in part six and maybe part seven. I actually don't know how long I'll preach on it. But uh, that'll be up to the Lord and the times in prayer. But the thing is, something I've learned like with parenting, with personal, with how I, how I behave, you know where I have often found I get the best advice? Because I read lots of books. I actually enjoy books. I love psychology. I love lots of science stuff. I really do. I kind of nerd out there. However, I have always found my best advice always comes from watching how God behaves with me. I get in here and I read the word, but then it's my own personal experience with God to watch how he is with me, how he parents me and shepherds me, and then I think, oh, then by extension, I want to try to parent and shepherd my own kids in that same way. I have found that to be some of my best advice, and I actually didn't learn that on my own. I learned that little trick from my wife uh, many years ago when we were actually going through this life model stuff, and I was trying to follow everything one, two, three, four. She seemed to have better success. I asked her what she was doing, and she's like, I just don't think I'm, I, I'm not smart enough to keep up with all the steps, so I just go into prayer, and I just <laughs> get desperate, and I do whatever God asks me to do. 
And her ways seem to work better than mine. Surprise. Anyways, point is, if we're called to the ministry of reconciliation, and I think all of us would agree, has anyone in here been hurt by someone? <laughs> it is almost laughable. Great. Okay, we've also hurt people. True, right? Okay, but we know what it's like to be in a relationship with someone close and have that trust broken. And now you want to reconcile. You want there to be a connection again, but how do you get from point A, I've been hurt, and it, it actually hurts? This isn't theory anymore. I'm hurting. It didn't just hurt. I'm still hurting. When I think about it, I want to isolate. When I think about it, I want to medicate because I'm hurting. And I want to be restored, but I can't. How do I get past that? How do I get past the memory of what's happened? I think we can find a lot of at least starting points, things to consider by looking at what Jesus did to reconcile himself to us. He suffered our reproach. He didn't even stand for his rights. I mean, if he did, he could have destroyed us. Could he not? We owed the debt. He paid the debt. He put our best in front of his best. Now, you might have all sorts of questions going through your head. What about my situation? This is abuse or this is... I'm not giving an answer to that. I'm not even saying that every situation looks the same. I'm saying that our starting point for learning how to do things that God calls us to do always begins in his word and with the very character of who, of who God is. We start there and then we begin to navigate from that spot. Our problem is too often we're like, well, that's impossible, so I'm going to try to deal with this on my own the way I think it should be done. And then we falter because it is impossible, but we're, because of the impossibility of it, we're, we're jumping to the wrong conclusion. We should accept, yeah, it is impossible. The kind of reconciliation he's calling us to, the kind of love he calls us to, is supposed to be so impossible that the world sees it as a miracle when we do it. Because it is. He calls us to the ministry of reconciliation. The church, each of us, should be masters at this. And if not masters, we should be apprenticing under our master so that we can become masters of it the way he is. Masters of reconciliation. Masters of forgiveness. They are different, but they're together. This is our business. If Jesus is in the business of reconciling relationships, we should be in the business of reconciling relationships. It's how we love God. It's how we love people. Ray Ortland writes this, the gospel, being what it is and always will be, the message of reconciliation, our churches should be the most reconciling, peaceable, relaxed, happy places in town. We're so open to enemies, so meek in the face of insults and injuries, so forgiving towards the undeserving. If we do make people angry, let this be the reason. We refuse to join in the selfish battles. We're following a higher call. We're peacemakers, true sons of God. Now this is hard in any circumstance. Loving your enemies, loving a stranger who's hurting you, is impossibly hard. Crying out like Jesus, Father, forgive them for they know not what they do. 
is going to take you and the Holy Spirit getting alone together and having that revelation and meeting with him where you say yes to him and he bears it all in your soul. It's hard, but look at what he did that to. Father, forgive them for they know not what they do. He knew each one. See, we have strangers to us, right? Some are alienated from God in the sense of he's a stranger to them. None of us are strangers to him. He cried out that highest level of forgive them for they know not what they do to the ones that were hurting him, the ones that he knew. He knows everything about their lives. Loves them completely, dying for them. Okay. Now obviously it's much messier when we're talking about relationships where we have regular proximity. And there's all sorts of different levels, right? If we look at the, the, you know, the, the stages of relationships and, and the depths that they go, but we have marital relationships, mar- uh, kid relationships, best friend, family. Now we're talking messy. How do we apply these principles here? What does it look like? How would, I, how would I do what's best for someone else, but then still stand up and say, well, this is not right, you can't keep doing this. Like, how does that look, right? Not standing up for my rights, but then also doing what's best for them. This is the mess we're going to jump into, and that's why I would actually encourage, I'm hoping that the Lord speaks to all of us on this, that we all get moved to action. Uh, I've been searching my own heart and being moved to action, but I will say, let's, let's not go from, we're terrible at this and we never do it properly, to we're just going to jump in both feet, which is my habit, jump in both feet and then just see what happens afterwards. Let's not do that. Let's address the heart. God has, has grace for us and he has a plan for us at, at Southland. But it's very different. What about things like spousal abuse, neglect, addiction, substance abuse, abandonment, financial disputes, business partner that totally lied to you? What do we do here? When it's Christian versus Christian, like how do we handle that? Gossip, slander, social media attacks. I mean, I'm talking about things that we've all experienced, right? Maybe not each one, but some level of these we've been touched. I've been touched by a bunch. I've been, I've been the offender on a bunch. I've been victim and I've been an offender. Have you been both? All right, let's look at three categories of offenders. By the way, that question is a good one to ponder. I didn't put it in here, but that's a good one to ponder. You want to learn how to deal with people that offend you? Ask yourself, are you an offender and a victim or just a victim? Anyways. We're called to reconciliation. Three categories of offenders. Oh, look at that. You're on there. (laughs) People we don't know. And there's varying levels of this, but people we don't know. And then there's people we know. And the reason why I, I put those as separate, because aren't we just called to love everyone? Yeah, we are. And we're called to love everyone that hurts us. Absolutely yes, absolutely yes. But there is a difference. And I'm not saying one is necessarily easier than the other. Uh, We're going to look at examples in just a moment. Some of the things that our brothers and sisters have suffered from around the world. Some of them that are still suffering now from people that they don't know. Captors that are torturing them and, and they're losing their lives for their faith. That would be unimaginably hard. I don't know that that would be any easier or harder. How do you compare that with a broken marriage? I don't know that you can. They're just different. Does that make sense? They're just different. It's different and there's sometimes added steps when there's relationships. And, and there's, a, there's elements of reconciliation that we're all called to that we have to do. There are, we're going to talk about that in part six. Forgiveness, though, 
across the board, we must do it, period. But, um, but then there's, a, there's added elements then once we start getting into trust relationships. All right, so people we know and trust, and then we also have to realize, though, for any of this to work, we offend. We are offenders. We're not victims. Don't just stay there. You're not just a victim. You are an offender, too. We all hurt people. You might say, but what I did isn't as bad as what they did. That's, that's human rationalization, and it may even be true to a level, and we're going to confront that, though, at the end of the message. Okay, we're not there yet. Um, so let's move on to step number one, because we're going to go through the three steps we need. We need uh, three components for, uh, forgive, for, for broken relationships to be restored. And the first one is forgiveness. Forgiveness from the heart. And that's where we're going to focus most of our, well, the rest of our attention on today is just going to be part one. I wanted to go through all three in one message, and that was very ambitious. I had to cut down probably half the message just on the first one. Because we've talked about the importance of forgiveness, but the practice of it is way different than theory. It's way different than theory. And uh, we're always going to be growing in this. But forgiveness is something, that, what is important for us to know today is forgiveness is something that I do with God. I may get help from another. I might need a therapist. I might talk to a pastor, a cell leader, a family member. Someone, though, whoever it is, if you're working through forgiveness, it should, it should be someone who's going to encourage you and point you back to Jesus. They're mature enough already to do that. Or they're qualified. They're not going to keep you stuck in gossip or stuck in, in replaying the event or stuck in the, in the pain. Does that make sense? So not everyone is, is the right person to navigate that with. And you don't necessarily need someone for it. Who you for sure don't need for forgiveness, though, is the person who hurt you. That's a common misconception. You don't need that person. It's between you and God. Forgiveness is an act of setting yourself free from the hurt that was committed against you. That's what it's about. Releasing the debt. We're saying, I'm canceling the debt that is owed me. Now you might say, well, that does have to do with the other person. I know. And it's miraculous. Without them doing anything, he, Jesus calls us to forgive no matter what. Okay, so that's the first step between me and God. Reconciliation is a two-way conversation. You can't force someone to reconcile with you. Both parties have to be ready. Meaning you might be ready, they might not be ready. You might be in the waiting game. You might be in the praying game. Or you might both want reconciliation, but you both haven't worked through step one. So neither of you are actually ready. And then you shouldn't do it. It can be quite destructive then. And then trust is an entirely different thing, but that's something you build after those other two steps have been worked through. Now you might say, yeah, but do I have to trust everyone? Do I have to be best friends with everyone? No, you don't. That's not a call in Scripture. You are called to love everyone. Even in the case, and we'll talk about uh, this more in part six, even in cases where it's justified to set up a boundary and say, I'm not going to be in close relationship with someone, where Scripture says you can treat them like an unbeliever. Oh, treat them like an unbeliever, that's harsh. Well, okay, remember, how are we supposed to treat unbelievers? We're supposed to love them? Pray for them, serve them. You're saying, well, what does that mean then? It means you don't have to be in close community with them. That's what it means. There are, there are times for that. But anyways, you don't have to be everyone's best friend. But we have to be masters, ministers of reconciliation, absolutely yes. And we have to forgive and we have to be able to love. And if you're saying, well, I don't need to trust them, and so I don't want to work through reconciliation, I'll forgive, but I just will avoid that's not what Scripture teaches us to do, and that does not model Christian charity. 
So let's be wise in how we move forward in this, okay? So let's go on to uh, step C. We'll actually start looking at forgiveness from the heart, what it means and what it doesn't mean, and how we actually get there, because re- I think we understand this. Remember that passage we talked about, I think, a couple of weeks ago? So also will my heavenly Father do to every one of you if you don't forgive from the heart. Oh, scary, right, with the servant who didn't forgive his friend. Colossians 3.13, bearing with one another. This is almost the word for word what Ephesians says, uh, which you'll find in many cases in those two letters. Bearing with one another, and if one has a complaint against one another, forgiving each other as the Lord has forgiven you, so you also what? Help me here. Must forgive. What a great verse. Bearing with one another, if you have a complaint against each other, forgiving each other as the Lord has forgiven you, you also must forgive. So just in case you weren't getting it, it's not a suggestion. We're back to we must, we must forgive. I'm going to read you a couple of quotes, and we're going to end with a story too, but I don't, we're not at the end yet. Uh, this is from Jesus Freaks. I had my son read it probably when he was too young <laughs> to read uh, those uh, books because they're about martyrs and people who've suffered for their faith. Anyways, um, this is one of my favorite stories in the first one. And it's, uh, it's titled, We Die With Gratitude. Uh, I'm not going to try those names. I actually don't know how to say them. But during the Red Guard era, this is on pages 109 and 110 if you have the book and you want to go back and look. The two Christian girls awaited in the Chinese prison yard for the announced execution. They had decided to submit to death without renouncing their faith. Flanked by renegade guards, the two Christian girls, your kids. Flanked by renegade guards, the executioner came with a revolver in his hand. It was their own pastor. He had been sentenced to die with the two girls, but as on many other occasions in church history, the persecutors worked on him, tempting him, They promised to release him if he would shoot the girls. He accepted. The girls bowed respectfully before their pastor. One of them said, Before you shoot us, we wish to thank you heartily for what you have meant to us. You taught us that Christians are sometimes weak and commit terrible sins, but they can be forgiven again. When you regret what you're about to do to us, Do not despair like Judas, but repent like Peter. God bless you. And remember that our last thought was not one of indignation against your failure. Everyone passes through hours of darkness. May God reward you for all the good you've done. We die with gratitude. They bowed their heads again. The pastor's heart was hardened. He shot the girls. It says afterwards they shot him anyways. I can't even think about that story without getting choked up. I don't know if it's just believers or if anyone. I, I think anyone who reads this, if you believe that it happened, and I do, I mean, it's documented, we all look at that and there's something about it that is desirable, not that we want that to happen, but we, it's miraculous. It doesn't make sense. And all of us know that there's something that those girls had that we want. Because they were unoffendable. but yet they demonstrated the most radical level of love that you could ever demonstrate. Earlier I said, we learn how to reconcile from the master of reconciliation himself, our mentor, our Lord Jesus Christ. And I said, what would happen, you know, if we started looking to Scripture and how Jesus did the reconciliation, how he did it, and maybe made that our model for our own relational brokenness. 
These two girls understood that. In Genesis, we get the story of Jacob and Esau. Long story short, you can go to Genesis 33. I think it starts in 31 or whatever it is, but I, I should maybe check that before I reference it and I'm wrong. It's in Genesis anyways. It's around the 30s. And you get the story of Jacob and Esau, and you know there's a little bit of deception that goes on, and there's hurt feelings. And long story short, Jacob swindles the birthright and his father's blessing from Esau. That was a big deal back then, right? It makes Esau give his birthright for a, a bowl of lentil soup, I believe it was. Uh, it was. So he was starving, comes in from the field, feels like he's going to die, and Jacob just makes this ridiculous deal when we all know that the right thing to do would be what? To share your soup. You share your soup, it's your brother. Even if you don't like each other, that's like a minimal low level of kindness to offer your brother when he's dying, right? Instead of trying to take him for everything he's worth. Can you imagine being in the hospital and all you need is food, you're, you're that malnourished, and the deal that your family member comes is, is, I want your house and everything you own, and then I'll give you what you need to live? That's the equivalent of what happened here. And the only reason I like to make it personal is sometimes we read through the stories and we forget the human element and the emotional hurts that's going along the story, right? So imagine being Esau, having that happen. I was dying and you took everything I owned? Really? And then later on, he deceives his uh, dad and pretends to be Esau and takes, his aging, takes advantage of his aging father, his dying aging father, and steals his blessing. And you're like, oh, Whenever I read this story, I never feel so negative towards Jacob. Yeah, because, I mean, he did good things too later on, but, but he has a past. Like all of us, we're all offenders and victims. We're all both. Anyways, story picks up in Genesis 33, 3 to 4, and this is the two verses I want to focus on. Because now Jacob is coming back into the land where he came from, and Esau is there, and he's worried. Because Jacob knows, even though sometimes we read over the story and forget all the elements of it, Jacob doesn't forget it. He knows what he did. And he's scared of his brother. So he's coming up with a plan and he's coming there. He's expecting some kind of retaliation. He's going to come low. He's coming for reconciliation because reconciliation is bringing two parties back together. That doesn't say that that's his goal, but that is what reconciliation is. He's coming there. Look how Esau responds. I just love this. He himself went on before them, Jacob, bowing himself to the ground seven times until he came near his brother. Esau ran to meet him and embraced him, fell on his neck and kissed him, and they wept. Don't you want to be someone that's so free that you could do that to the one who hurt you? That's freedom. That's strength. We think, if I just let it go, then I'm a victim. No, no. You have moved well beyond being a victim at that point. When you can forgive like that and show love like that, they're reconciled in a moment. Esau laid aside his rights to get even at the slightest gesture from Jacob to come back. Reminds you of the, the prodigal story, doesn't it? Yeah, this is a real story though, Jacob and Esau. So how do you get to that spot? True reconciliation can't happen unless you've forgiven first. If you try it before forgiveness, you're going you're gonna to jump into all sorts of problems. Because our hearts are deceitful and desperately wicked. And I know this in my own life, and you probably know this already in your own, but we have sinful attitudes. Even when I say, I want the right thing to be done, inwardly, I'll be honest with you, I want to be right. Because it feels better to be right than to be wrong. 
But would we consider giving up such rights? We have to forgive first. So if we're going to forgive first, it's going to require a few things. Three that we're going to look at. It, probably there's more than this. I just went with three things that have been important in my own life as I'm working through it. And there was a fourth one, but we didn't have time. I, I took it off. But the first one is this, because we, we need a different mindset. We need a, a perspective shift if we're going to forgive from the heart. We really, I, I've challenged us in the first two uh, that we need to start thinking you know, if Jesus was right in front of me, would I do it then? What would Jesus want me to do? Could I do it for him? This is now taking that even more practical and detailed into how the mindset you have to have to forgive from the heart first. Would you consider these truths? That our king and his kingdom is more important than our rights. I know sometimes we say, well, like, my rights don't matter. I'm not saying your rights don't matter. Maybe there are cases where they don't matter, but I'm not saying that. Don't fight me on that. Your rights do matter. Your Father in Heaven loves you. He wants you to feel loved. And He wants you to feel safe in your marriage. Your rights do matter. I'm just saying, if it comes down to a conflict between the two, between your King and His Kingdom and your rights, which one is going to be more important to you? We talk about loving God and loving people. You can't do this if your rights are more important than your king and his business. Then you'll do at very best, at very best, what Jesus said is, if you love those who love you, what reward do you have? Do not even the tax collectors do the same? If you greet only your brothers, what more, I like how the ESV puts it, what more are you doing than others? Gentiles do that. You don't need the Holy Spirit in you to say hi to someone who's being friendly or to love those whom you love and that love you reciprocally. 1 Corinthians 10, 23 to 24, all things are lawful, but not all things are helpful. All things are lawful, but I will not... But not all things build up. Let no one seek his own good but the good of his neighbor. <laughs> you know what I love about this? It's basically saying the same thing. All things are lawful. Yes, you have rights. You do. You have rights. We should remember, though, that part of our rights, though, as a sinner, is death. Just keep that in context, right? In, in context. But now I'm not saying that because sometimes we just go there and it's like now I'm minimizing and now you're in a bad relationship and you're just supposed to let them just keep walking all over you and there's no voice that you have, no advocate. No, no, I'm not saying that. I'm not saying that either. Right? Hear what I am saying? Hear what I'm not saying. It is true that all of us have the right to eternal death apart from Jesus. And because of what Jesus did by not holding to his rights, by laying his rights down, we're now given the gift of salvation so we can be reconciled to God. That's an incredible gift. Now, we are also called to reconcile, and for that to happen, we might have to do the same thing that Jesus had to do and lay down our rights for the sake of his kingdom. Practice. Oh, I gotta go faster. That's okay. Questions. These are questions to consider. Uh, what would honor Jesus the most? And this, by the way, they're in order. Sometimes we put things down, like consider all these questions. I would say consider these questions in this order if you're trying to get to that truth. What honors Jesus the most? 
And if that's a really hard thing, I feel for you. It might even be something impossibly hard. But he'll help you in it, and you're not alone in the body of Christ. What honors him the most? What would be best for the other person? What would be best for them? They're the offender. I'm the victim. What would be best for them? The healthiest boundaries, even when we talk about boundaries that are set, are set with that question in mind. It's not just holding on to my rights. How do I love my enemy best? How do I be like my teacher the best? Luke 6 says, everyone when he is fully trained will be like his teacher. Lord, how do I get fully trained to do that the best? Let me walk that road. What's best for them, what's best for the kingdom, and then we're going to look at what's best also for me. And you'll find, actually, those answers are usually all one and the same. That's what you'll find. Because you'll find that falling for the traps of the enemy and holding on to bitterness and breaking off relationship without walking through a process hurts you more. Opposite of what you think, and that is that it'll make me, it'll protect me and keep me better. It just, all it does is trap you in bondage. But we have to look at it the right way. So okay, moving forward, a little bit faster. Second one to consider. Whatever measure I use, it will be used to measure me. Do I want, this is like, isn't it great? I have some I questions in here. What do I want? Do I want judgment or do I want mercy? You're like, I didn't do anything wrong in this offense or this, this, this broken relationship. I wasn't the one who did anything wrong. I'm not talking about that. I'm talking about getting the right heart that enables you to forgive from the heart. That's what we're talking about. We're not talking about the specifics of a certain situation yet. To get there, I'm saying we have to recognize we're all offenders, we're all victims. So in the, in the areas where I've committed offenses, do I want judgment or mercy? Still remember where I was sitting in the crack shack, as we call it, uh, before, before we moved out. It was the drug dealing house. Anyways, <laughs> that's where I found Jesus and whatever else. But that, I remember sitting at the table when I read that in Luke and cross-referenced with Matthew. And I sat there and I wept bitterly thinking of all the terrible things I'd done, all the people I'd hurt. And I just thought, mercy, that's all I want. I need mercy. And if the price of that mercy is I cry out for mercy to those that have hurt me, then Lord, let me cry out mercy louder than anybody else. Let them see you in me because he desires mercy and not judgment. But he will judge. All right. Moving on. Last one here. And then we'll get on to some stories and we'll close up. My sin is equal to the sins of others. Let that one sink in. My sin is equal to the sins of others. I think most of you can agree with that at face value. I think I can. You know where it falls apart? When I have someone that I care about or someone that I don't care about and they're in my face and they're hurting me right now. And in that moment, my angry outburst, or the moments afterwards, maybe I muscle through that one moment, 
my moments afterwards of holding on to bitterness, those sins don't seem nearly as bad. All have sinned, all fall short of God's glorious standard. When we get into this, this mind game of which sins are worse than the other sins, now by, by the way, I'll just caveat quickly. Aren't some sins worse than others? In, an, in a way, yes. In a way, no. In the way, yes, some sins have far, far greater reach in their damaging effect to those around us. They do. Think about pornography versus adultery. Jesus said they're the same thing. They are in the sense of they're both sin. Adultery has far greater impact outwardly. It affects two families. Do you see what I mean? Like it affects more. Pornography is just as sinful. That's how that works. Luke 7, 36 to 50. I'm not going to read the whole thing. Sinful woman in the story of Simon the Pharisee. Simon, Jesus comes over to eat and comes in and Simon doesn't wash his feet or give him water to wash his feet. Simon doesn't kiss him. There's no greeting. That's how they always... Shouldn't we go back to that? Well, just, that'd be kind of weird, especially after COVID, I guess. That's probably bad. Anyways, that's what they did back then. I'm not saying it's a command. It was just cultural. But, but they would kiss each other and that, that would be the thing, right? Uh, to, to greet. Uh, there'd be an anointing of oil, usually on the head. These are all parts of, it was customary to honor the guest. They were very big on hospitality, and they had a lot of rules on what they did. Simon doesn't offer Jesus any of these things. None. But there's this woman that's a known sinner that does all of them. She gets on her feet. She humiliates herself and wipes Jesus' feet with her hair and her tears. And, she, and Jesus said she didn't stop kissing his feet She anointed him with ointment. And Simon's about to accuse Jesus and saying, look at that. See, he's not a prophet. He doesn't even know that this is a sinner. Look what she's, like what kind of woman this is. And Jesus kind of poses the question, if two people have a debt, one larger, one smaller, and they're both forgiven, who's going to be more appreciative? Who's going to love more? Simon says, well, I suppose the person with a bigger debt. Jesus says, you're right. And then he goes on to say this. Therefore, I tell you, her sins which are many are forgiven, for she loved much. He who is forgiven little loves little. And he said to her, your sins are forgiven. You know, we look at this and we say, well, what's the point? Like some people have a larger debt than the other? No. All have sinned. All fall short of God's glorious standard. All of us require the same gift grace from the Lord. We have to get to that spot where we realize that all of our sin is equal. It all requires a gift. Uh, of grace. Now, the question I'll have to ponder here, and I'm not going to get into all the nitty-gritty details, and then I'll end with the story. What would change if we could answer this? Is my sin of bitterness as sinful as the wrongs committed against me? Now, you might have all sorts of examples coming to your mind, and I'm not going to go through that. We don't even have time. I'm not telling you to take a move on any of this. I'm not. I'm asking you to consider that. The early church in here and in the first century afterwards, they thought broken relationships, resentment, bitterness was equal to any wrong committed against you. What would happen if we thought that? Maybe we'd be able to forgive. Now I'll read some stories and then we got to, then we are closing. Richard Wormbrandt 
Wormbrandt, he, got, he suffered in prison for 14 years, uh, lost his son through the whole thing, got tortured almost daily. You can read his story in Tortured for Christ. Um, also started Voice of the Martyrs. Anyways, I'll just read you a couple things and we'll go through it quick. He's, he's uh, watching a pastor who had been persecuted. That's what he says. Wormbrandt saw the pastor caress the hair of a man who had tortured him. He was on his deathbed and he was sick. And this pastor is there now to care for him, the guy who tortured him. Tortured him and speak these, this is what he spoke. I have forgiven you with all my heart and I love you. If I, who am only a sinner, can love and forgive you more, so can Jesus who is the Son of God and who is love incarnate. Return to him. He longs for you much more than you long for him. He wishes to forgive you much more than you wish to be forgiven. You must just repent. There in the prison cell, the communists began to confess all his murder and tortures to the one that he tortured. When he had finished, the two men prayed together, embraced, and then returned to their beds, where each died that very night. One more, Sabina Wormbrandt, Richard Wormbrandt's wife. When Romania entered the war on Germany's side, a pogrom began in which many thousands of Jews were killed or deported. At Lassie alone, 11,000 were massacred in a single day. My wife, this is Richard writing, uh, this is in the book uh, God's Underground, if you ever want to read it, it's good. My wife, who shares my Protestant faith, is also of Jewish origin. We lived in Bucharest, from which the Jews were not deported, but her parents, one of her brothers, three of her sisters, and other relatives who lived in Buscovine, were taken to Transnistria, a wild border province that the Romanians had captured from Russia. Jews were not murdered at the end of this journey, but were left to starve, and there Sabina's family had died. Sometime later, our landlord, a good Christian, told me sadly of a man who stayed at the house while on leave from the front. I knew him from before the war, he said, his, he, but he's changed completely. He's become a brute who likes to boast of how he volunteered to exterminate Jews and killed hundreds at his own hands. I went upstairs after supper to the landlord's flat. Lounging in an armchair was a giant of a man whom the landlord introduced as Barilla, the killer of the Jews from Transmistria. Uh, when he rose, he was even taller than I, and there seemed to be about him an aura of horror that smelled like blood. Soon he was telling us of his adventures in the war and the Jews he had slaughtered. The murder proved to be not only a murderer, no, uh, nobody is only one thing, he was a pleasant talker. And eventually it came out that he had a great love of music. I'll skip forward a little bit, so they actually sang songs together and played. The landlord um, and his wife and his daughters accompanied us. My wife was in bed, she was used to, my, used to me playing softly at night and did not wake up. So here Richard is talking with this large man, right? and his wife is sleeping in the room right over here. The same wife whose family was murdered in the area where he was murdering Jews. You're all tracking? All right. At one point during a song, I thought of, you know, he's talking about how he thought about David who played the harp before Saul, and then he all of a sudden stops the song and he turns to Brilla and says this, I have something very important to say to you. I told him, uh, and Brilla said, please speak. And he said, if you look through that curtain, you can see someone is asleep in the next room. It's my wife, Sabina. Her parents, her sisters, and her 12-year-old brother have been killed with the rest of the family. You told me that you had killed hundreds of Jews near Golta, and that's where they were taken. Looking into his eyes, I added, you yourself don't know if, if you have shot, so whom you have shot, so we can assume that you are the murderer of her family. He jumped up, his eyes blazing, looking as if he were about to strangle me. I held up my hand and said, no, 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 let's try an experiment. I shall wake my wife and I will tell her who you are and what you've done. I can tell you what, I can tell you what will happen. My wife will not speak one word of reproach. She'll embrace you as if you were her brother. She'll bring you supper, the best thing she has in the house. 
Now, if Sabina, who is a sinner like us all, can forgive, are you catching the heart? If Sabina, who is a sinner like us all, can forgive and love like this, imagine how much more Jesus, who is perfect in love, can forgive and love you. Only turn to him, and everything you have done will be forgiven. This is the heart of the men and women of the way. This is our heart. Barilla was not heartless within. He was consumed with guilt and misery, and he began to shake and weep. His reaction was amazing. He jumped up. He tore his collar with both hands. His shirt was rent apart. Oh, God, what shall I do? What shall I do? He cried. He put his hands in his head, or his head in his hands, and he sobbed. I'm a murderer. I'm soaked in blood. What shall I do? Tears ran down his cheek. He cried, in the name of Jesus Christ, or this is what Richard cries, in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ, I command the devil of hatred to go out of your soul. Barilla fell on his knees, trembling, and we began to pray out loud. He knew no prayers. He simply asked again and again for forgiveness. Now, he said, I promise to make an experiment. I shall now keep my word. Now Richard goes to get his wife, Sabina. I went into the other room and found my wife still sleeping calmly. She was very weak and exhausted at that time. I woke her gently and said, there is a man here whom you must meet. We believe he has murdered your family, but he has repented now and he is our brother. She came out in her dressing gown and put her arms around him. They both began to weep and kiss each other again and again. I have never seen a bride and bridegroom kiss with such love and purity as this murderer and the survivor among his victims. Then, as I foretold, Sabina went to the kitchen to bring him food. I'm going to pray and we'll close the service. Lord, no one can forgive like that unless they've been forgiven much by you. No one loves like that unless they know you. So Lord, as we look at those that have hurt us, we know this first step is to forgive from the heart and that's going to require you to give us a new heart. One that looks at the world differently. And that's what we're asking for today so that we can move towards true reconciliation. That we would be able to forgive. That we would be able to put your kingdom, your testimony, your name above our own rights. Lord, I pray as we walk with you into the waters of true forgiveness and reconciliation, Lord, that the world would see you in us. And that you would move powerfully and heal those broken areas of our lives. We ask this in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen.